Today's scripture is from James 2, verses 1 through 13. The letter from Jesus is a collection of practical instructions written to all God's people, scattered over the whole world. This scripture is just one of the instructions regarding practical wisdom and guidance for Christian attitudes and conduct. This letter emphasizes the importance of actions along with faith in the practice of the Christian religion. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord, Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith? and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor. It is not the rich who are exploiting you. Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blasphemizing the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. When I first went to seminary down in Pasadena, I used to go on a run every day, and I would run by an old church that I didn't know much about. Until one day, a friend told me that apparently at that church that used to be there, it worked like this. The more you tithed, the closer to the front you got to sit. Now, I told Dale about this when I was preparing, and he and I laughed and suggested that perhaps here it would work more like the more you tithe, the further back you got to sit. And it's funny, and it makes us laugh and giggle. But then along comes James, who reminds us, with his signature lack of softness, that whenever favoritism enters into the community of God, It tears its very fabric apart. And I would be lying if I told you that preparing this sermon was easy for me. Because these words of James convicted me and challenged me. They pushed me to face some things about myself, about the world, 
and the church that I was not particularly excited to engage in. Because the church of James's time is not the only one to suffer from a predisposition towards favoring the wealthy. Our culture, as you well know, both in the church and out of it, has a tendency to lean towards favoring the haves more than the have-nots. As far back as we look in history, it is not unaccustomed for the wealthy and powerful to literally be given the best seats in the house. In houses of worship for God, the front pews were often set aside for the noble families in the area, while the poor were crowded into the back. Time and time again, I move my purse onto the seat next to me when I'm on a bus or a train, when the person that boards seems like someone that I wouldn't want to sit next to. Time and time again, I hold my breath on the plane as I watch each person walking down the aisle, wondering who's going to be sitting next to me. In a famous scene in Pretty Woman, Julia Roberts attempts to go shopping on Rodeo Drive when she is still dressed in her skimpy, dirty clothes, and no one will help her. The next day, she arrives back dressed in expensive clothing that she's purchased, and she walks in. She asks the shop girls, do you remember me? And they say, no. She says, I was here yesterday, and you wouldn't help me. Big mistake. Takes her credit cards and goes. And while we cheer for her victory over those snobby girls, I can't help but think that she's still being judged on her outward appearance. It's still not her intrinsic value as a human that's causing anyone to want to serve her. Twice in this passage, James points out that the effects of partiality and favoritism are a breaking of God's law, and that they in fact call into question one's very faith in Christ. These are serious effects, and James wants to catch our attention. If you break it down, James is basically saying that if we show favor to the rich over the poor in our lives, that we don't actually believe in Jesus. I don't think that James means that we don't believe in Jesus as a concept, as a person, or as even as God, but rather that when we show partiality by failing to recognize God's special care and love for the poor, we are showing that we do not fully believe or understand the message of Jesus. We do not understand the character of God. Because time and time again, from Genesis to Deuteronomy to Leviticus to the wisdom literature, to the New Testament and the Gospels and Jesus' own words, we find that God declares a special love and preference for the poor. He announces their primacy and their primary place in the kingdom. 
And this is what I meant when I said a few weeks ago at the beginning of the series that James was going to make us uncomfortable. Because I think that if we are all brutally honest with ourselves, we can admit that there have been plenty of times in our lives when we have shown favoritism towards people not based on their inner qualities, their godliness, their faithfulness, but rather on their outward appearances, on what they seemed to be able to do for us. And this could have been in our offices, in our classrooms, in this very room and building. We are far more likely to admit the rich into our circles and the poor. And James is proven right. Because we look at the poor, or at least when I look at the poor, I have to confess that I don't often believe that God is blessing them. Don't believe in God's promise for them. Instead, we look at those people and we see everything we fear. And as I thought on this, I began to wonder if perhaps when people talk about disliking the poor and the homeless, it's because they dislike the people, or maybe, just maybe, it's because those people represent their own fear of losing everything. Or when I hear people talk about hating or rejecting immigrants and refugees, if it's an innate hatred of another human, or if it's because when we're faced with people, they remind us of the precarious nature of the world, of how close each and every one of us is to the edge, and we don't want to be around people like that because they remind us of our own fragility, of our own tenuous control and hold on these lives that we hold so very dear. Because we don't really believe in our heart of hearts that Jesus is actually enough. That God will, in fact, put food on our table and clothes on our back. Or that being poor means we're any closer to God. And because when we look at people that remind us of what we fear, we can't handle it. We reject them. We put them to the back into the side and we prefer a safer fantasy of how we think life should be. James writes, Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? If I could rewrite this to make myself feel better, it would instead say something probably more along the lines of, has not God chosen the comfortable and the secure middle to upper middle class to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom? We wonder what it is about the poor that gives them this special faith. Why are they welcomed as heirs? Why is James so focused on them. When I was a kid, one of my favorite books in the whole world was The Velveteen Rabbit. 
If you haven't read it, even as an adult, I suggest you do so. Because it's a story about a little toy rabbit, a little stuffed animal who's given to a young boy as a present. And he ends up in the nursery where all the toys come alive or can talk to one another. And the little rabbit knows that he's not very important. He's not shiny. He doesn't have nice packaging. He's not motorized like a lot of the other toys. And when he's there, he meets another toy named the Skin Horse, who becomes kind of his mentor. And he asks one day about being real. What is it to be real? The Skin Horse looks at the little rabbit and he tells him, it doesn't happen all at once. No, you become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't happen often to people who break easily or who have sharp edges or have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you are real, you can't be ugly except to people who don't understand the little boy eventually comes to take his rabbit and they become best friends. And they sleep together and cuddle together and one day the boy tells him, you are real. And the rabbit believes it. The little boy comes down with scarlet fever and the rabbit has to be taken away. Taken out with the sheets to be burned so as not to infect someone else. And as the little rabbit lays there contemplating if it was worth it, to be real and feel all these things. If it was to end this way, he begins to cry and a flower comes up from the ground and a fairy appears and she says, now it's time for you to be real. He says, haven't I always been real? And she said, of course you've been real because the boy loved you and that made you real. But now it is time for you to be real to everyone else. And she takes him away and he becomes a real rabbit in the woods. Perhaps this is what James is trying to convey when he asks readers how they can know Jesus and still participate in favoritism. He reminds us that if we experience, if we really believe in the love of Jesus, that we will be made real. That we too are made to understand that it's not our outward shiny packaging that makes us who we are, but it is the love of Jesus that gives us our value and our life. And if we can know this love, if we can realize it and experience it for ourselves, how then can we not see that in other people? A millionaire in a Versace suit wearing a Rolex has no more value in the community and kingdom of God than an undocumented immigrant who is working for less than minimum wage, than an unwed teenage mother, than a homeless drug addict. As much as we want to make distinctions and excuses, James refuses to allow us the luxury 
he makes it clear that even if we were to follow every other rule, every other law of God, when we show favoritism to people based on their outward appearance, we are guilty. We have violated the very royal law of God. And it's right here when I am getting ready to curl up in a ball, when the guilt starts to feel so heavy and I feel like I'm going to spiral in on myself with self-loathing and shame, that James stops me. And he reminds us that by the grace of God, we are not under that law any longer. Instead, we are under the law of liberty in Christ. And that though I have made grave mistakes, though I have failed in this time and time and time again, that I am forgiven and loved deeply. That we are given another chance whether or not we deserve it. And so James shakes us from our self-pity, reminds us that we have an obligation to respond in kind to the grace and mercy that we have been given. Because luckily for us, Jesus did not choose to interact with us based on our outward appearance, based on the amount of money in our bank accounts or the kind of car we drive, but rather chose us because of his grace in our life of what we could be when we're made real over time. James ends his discourse on favoritism with what is either the best news or the worst news that we'll receive in his entire letter when he says, for judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. Though we cannot claim to understand it, James claims that our own actions can and do affect how we will be judged. That in fact, the standards by which we hold others may well be the ones that are held against us in the end. And so we find that it is not a theoretical or a purely spiritual mercy that James calls us to, but rather it is an active mercy that cares for the poor, that cares for the widows and the orphans and all those who James continues to name in his letters. When we turn away those who are sick and hungry and poor and broken and lost, we risk being turned away ourselves. Jesus declares this himself in Matthew 25 when he declares that many will have claimed to have known him. And he will say, I never knew you. And many will have said, Lord, when did you know us? And he will say, when you fed me and gave me water. If you want to know what all the studies say that a younger generation is looking for in a church, it boils down to this. It's all here in James a place where mercy triumphs over judgment, where the vulnerable are cared for and grace is given. And it is a beautiful picture that James paints us 
with triumph. If you've ever seen an image from a painting from the French Revolution or the American Revolution where you see Lady Liberty and Lady Freedom on the battlefield, clothes flowing behind them, arm raised in victory, that is the image that James is painting when he says that mercy triumphs over judgment. It is mercy personified, standing on a battlefield of the world, arm raised in victory as judgment lays at her feet. It is not passive. It is fierce and overwhelming and defiantly courageous. It is mercy made real in the world. In this moment, perhaps more than ever, we need less favoritism and more mercy. We need to be the church that James and God calls us to be. Last week, in a report from Oxfam, a nonprofit that works internationally, they released new data that showed that in 2016, nine people, nine, owned as much wealth in this world as the bottom half of humanity. That is 3.6 billion people. Our television shows and our culture worship the wealthy and disparage the poor as weak, lazy, worthless, fundamentally broken inside, rather than ones who are chosen and loved by God. But James rejects this narrative. And he reminds us that mercy is not some exhaustible, exhaustible resource. Rather, it is an infinite one that we do not have to fear giving away too quickly. For as much mercy as we receive, we then give and receive double. Every Sunday, we look at this table and it is easy for it to become a prop. It is easy for it to gloss over in our minds as we think about what is coming, but it is there for a reason. Because every time we look at it, we are reminded that we are people of the table. We are a people who have been called not because we are perfect or shiny or new, not because of what we have or what we've done, but because of the great mercy of God. It is a table that reminds us that at the foot of the cross and in the home of our Father, we are all equal. We are left with a choice. We can choose to embrace our shabbiness and the shabbiness of others, to embrace the realness, and feel the mercy of God. Or we can reject it in favor of culture's preference for the shiny and the new, for the false and the misleading. But let us be real. Let us be a people instead who feel and embrace all that God has given us and share it with the world. Amen.